I don't like the music. I don't like the air conditioning. I don't like the mission. And God says, is there anybody around here who will stop caring about their own preferences and their desires and put me first above all else? Because when that happens, the God of Israel will always work. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. And you know, that is the entire purpose and the reason that we are gathered together to worship, to crown him who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Bible says that we will receive a crown of glory and we will respond by casting that crown down at the feet of the one who is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We've been talking through the series the past few weeks of prophets, priests, and kings. We've discovered something to be true. There are those who will say, even in our modern day, that the Old Testament is really something that should be discarded by the church, and we should really be more New Testament Christians. But I would submit to you that the Old Testament is that from where we get the New Testament, and you can't understand what Jesus is doing for the Old Testament in the New Testament without understanding and comprehending the Old. And if the Old Testament was good enough for Jesus to prove who He is, should it not also be good enough for us? And as we are looking through these stories, Paul reminds us that these lessons were not given for their sake, but they were given for ours, so that we might learn, that we might be reminded, and we might obey the commands of our Lord and Savior. 1 Samuel chapter 17, and we are going to begin reading in verse 38 this morning. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord, and he will give you into our hands. Scripture tells us that a harmful spirit that came from the Lord had been tormenting Saul. What a phrase the writer uses here. And in order to alleviate 
the tormenting that was occurring within his soul in large part because he had gone away from the commandment of the Lord and had forfeited the kingdom and God had rejected him as a result of his disobedience. They tell us that they brought in David, the future king, to play his harp to calm him. And because David was able to calm Saul, Saul loved him greatly, and David himself became Saul's armor bearer. In fact, he said at the end of 1 Samuel 16, let David remain in my service because he has found favor in my sight. And that's not going to last very long, but it's there. And whenever that harmful spirit came, David would play and Saul was relieved. I like what one a commentator said, the spirit that tormented Saul was relieved by the man bearing the spirit of God. That when the anointing of God is on your life as a result of obedience to his word, others will not help but sense that and be blessed. Is there a better description in all the Bible of what a giant should be than the name Goliath? I mean, it's perfect. Let me ask you, how many of you, anybody named your pet Goliath? Anybody done that? You give your pets Bible names? My dad named our, uh, we had a dog that came. He named him Zeus after the Greek gods, but I don't think that, that lines up to the name of Goliath. You think of something gargantuan. You think of, of, of something huge. You think of this behemoth that the Scripture describes and if you were to take the 5,000 shekels that the Bible talks about with his coat of armor, that would translate to about 125 pounds. Now, for comparison, the average troops over in Iraq and Afghanistan are covering anywhere between 40 to 60 and at the max 80 pounds of gear. But that's not their armor. That's everything plus the backpacks plus everything else. This guy's armor by itself weighs 125 pounds. He's nine and a half feet tall. He is literally a giant. And the shaft of his spear is like a weaver's beam, and the tip of his spear by itself weighs 15 pounds. And to keep one of those things in balance, just the tip of the spear, 15 pounds. This guy is huge, and the Scripture says that his shield-bearer goes before him. Now, can you imagine? This guy's nine and a half feet tall. He's got armor that weighs 125 pounds. The tip of his spear is 15 pounds by itself. He is a monster. Can you imagine what his shield bearer must have had to do? That shield, if an average man is even six feet tall or above average in Bible times, that shield must have been over his head. To be a shield bearer of Goliath is not to have the easiest job in the world. You've got to cover a, a lot of ground and a lot of territory. His shield bearer goes before him, and Goliath comes out as the Philistines are coming against the Israelite, and he issues a challenge. Now, in the old days, and maybe perhaps in some corners of the world today, a one-on-one -on -one challenge could determine the outcome of nations. So you think of what Homer writes about in the Trojan War, Hector fighting against Paris over Helen of Troy. It's high risk and it's also high reward. The deal is, if your champion defeats their champion, you win and everybody surrenders to you. But if their champion defeats your champion, they win and you have to surrender to them. That's exactly what Goliath does here. He says, choose a man for yourselves in 17.8 and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And then he taunts them. He says, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. And nobody goes out to battle. He does this for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know if there's biblical symbolism in there or not, but for the 40 days of waiting, morning and evening, Goliath walks out, looks at the enemy, and says, somebody take me on. And the scripture tells us that everybody cowers in fear. And I'm not sure that I blame them. In the middle of all this, David is going back and forth. He's tending the sheep, but he's also going to get news of the battle at hand. So Jesse, his father, says, David, take some of the food to your brothers. Take it to the commander and go and check on them. So he goes out. They go out to their daily battle. In the middle of that battle, Goliath comes out further than everybody else. He makes that same challenge, and David hears him. And up until that time, all the men have been afraid. But rather than react in fear, David responds in anger. And he says in 1726, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Not just a Philistine, but an uncircumcised Philistine, somebody outside of the covenant community. David's oldest brother, Eliab, looks at him and he says, what are you doing here, kid? He says, you're not here for a good reason. You just came to see the battle. Saul hears about it, brings David in for questioning, and starts to rebuke him. But David says, in 1736, your servant has struck down both lions and bears as a shepherd, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, I want you to notice what makes David upset here. Previously, this whole passage has described Israel as Saul's army, the army of Saul. But David forgets the description. He doesn't say Saul's army. He says, this is the armies. These are the armies of the living God. Because there's a difference when your honor is called into question and the honor of God is called into question. And when the honor of God is defiled, is defied, David says at one point, zeal for your house has consumed me. David is filled with righteous indignation, not self-righteous indignation, defending self, but righteous indignation, defending the honor of the living God. David is mad at the things that make God mad. Would to God that the church would stop being upset at the things that make us upset and start being upset at the things that make God upset. He says, this is not worthy of the God we serve. And when God's honor is called into question, David takes action. And in 1737, he says, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Two things. Has God commanded you to do it? Is it in his word? And two, has he called you to do it? And if he's commanded you to do it, and if he's called you to do it, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. It's go. And that's exactly what David hears from Saul. Go, and the Lord be with you. 
So Saul responds by giving David his armor, the king's armor. Now, I don't know if there's some type of attempt at symbolic passing of the torch here or what's taking place. At any rate, Saul had been described as a head above all his peers. He should have been out there in the battle. He should have been fighting as the king of Israel, but he gives it to a kid. He gives it to a shepherd boy. David puts these things on, and they don't feel like they did out in the field. He says, this doesn't fit. And he goes without armament grabs five stones, and takes off. Goliath sees this kid coming out to battle. You can hear the pundits in the corner, can't you? He's young, he's naive, he's inexperienced. David is taking a foolish heart. I want to submit to you that the greatest people God have ever used in this world of history has been young, naive, and inexperienced. David looks out. Goliath sees him coming. He says, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And he curses him by his gods. Doesn't matter. They can't hear him. And he says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Taunted him pretty well here. And David responds back to him in 1745. This is called a turn and debate parlance. He turns the argument around. He says, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. In other words, this is not my battle. This is God's battle. He says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the beast. And mark this down in your Bible, 1746. Here's the whole reason for the passage. That all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel. God, show them who you are. Show them your glory. And he goes on in the next verse, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. I just wonder if this passage isn't the most misunderstood passage in the modern church. I think you can make a good case for it. Because we try to mix all this in with American culture and the American self-help industry. Watch this. David has his giants. You have yours. David knew how to sling his stones. Learn how to sling yours with proper technique and good aim. David was a giant killer. You can be a giant killer too. Or this. Discover and awaken the giant within you. Have they found the giant slayer within you today? Dear brothers and sisters, the God of this universe is doing something much greater than that. He is redeeming a people unto himself. He is demonstrating that even amid hopelessness and fear and discouragement, there is hope for those who leave the battle to him. The whole message of this passage isn't trust in yourself, but trust in the Lord. In fact, David will say at one point, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. 40% of our entire budget is spent on defense, is spent on our military. 
And would to God that we would provide for our troops and get them the equipment that they need all around the world. Humanitarian aid everywhere. But if we're not careful, we can become so caught up in physical defense that we forget all about spiritual armament. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. I wonder where my bank account is so I can afford all this. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. I don't know how I can get by beyond being in this relationship. Some trust in chariots and some trust in horses. And brothers and sisters, I would submit to you that if we would ever stop caring about our honor and start caring about the honor of God, this world would never be the same if we got over ourselves... And what we desired, and the fear and anxiety in our own heart, and we said, I care about the things that God cares about. Not that he needs my help, but he's certainly deserving of it. And when I stand in defense of the Lord my God, there will always be an answer. Because I will tell you the most dangerous prayer in all of Scripture is when you say it is not chariots, it is not horses, but God show them that you are the God of Israel. Show them that you are here today. That's what Elijah prayed. Bring down the fire, God. Show them that he's here. That's what Joshua prayed, marching around, looking like a fool with all of his weapons on the crowd, blowing trumpets and people saying, what are you doing? And the walls come down. We sit here and we say, man, we just don't have the money for that. (laughs) We just don't have the people. World's just changed too much. I don't like the music. I don't like the air conditioning. I don't like the mission. And God says, is there anybody around here who will stop caring about their own preferences and their desires and put me first above all else? Because when that happens, the God of Israel will always work. Sling a stone, no stone was needed. Goliath's own sword is used against him because some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name above our gods. This is the prayer above all prayers that they may know that there is a God in Israel. It's what Daniel's three friends prayed there in the fiery furnace, that they may know that there is a God. It's what people all throughout history who have given their lives, you can burn the martyrs. You can crucify our Lord, but you better know whatever you do, there is a God in Israel today. And you can change our laws, and you can empty our churches, and you can tell us not to worship God our own way, and you can persecute us all you want, but at the end of the day, there's a God in Israel. And if you and I would ever get over ourselves enough to stop caring about what we care about and stop caring about what God cares about, that is when God will most work in your lives. Because when God's honor is at stake and God's glory is at stake and you defend his honor and you defend his glory, that's when God will most work in your life. And notice what he says. This isn't about David being good with a slingshot. This isn't just about courage in the midst of fear, although that's there. He simply says, this isn't even my battle. This battle belongs to the Lord. That they may know that there is a God 
in Israel. Would you bow your heads for a few minutes this morning? I'm going to ask us to consider today, from your own background and your own circumstances, so often we're confronted with the reality of faith versus fear, of can we do this or not, rather than asking, has God called us to do this? Rather than asking, God, are you in this? And dear friends, if God is in it, he will provide. The question is not, can he do it? The question is always, is he in it? And maybe if we spent a little less time asking if the Lord was on our time, on our side, and a little more time making sure that we were on the Lord's side, this world might be a different place. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.